And I thought about Tucker. Um, our youth group have had a fantastic su- uh, summer. Uh, Jordan Payton been helping out. Uh, I think Friday they picked the hottest day of the year to go to Dollywood. Uh, somebody needs to help him with that. It's like, why? It's the hottest day, or so it seemed. Um, even if you love theme parks, you know, the heat can be brutal. I share that because I was reading a story about a guy who was at a theme park, and he observed a mother in line ahead of him by herself, and she was like saving a place in line for her son. He was kind of watching that. She was kind of motioning, talking, and then he noticed it wasn't an impaired son or somebody with a special condition that, that needed help. This mother was saving a place in line for her teenage son sitting in the shade eating ice cream. And, and as he was thinking about that, she could tell he was a little agitated by that. And she said, oh, it's okay. He's not cutting in line. I'm just saving the spot for him. I'm not going to ride. It's just kind of hot today. I thought, oh, my, my. I thought, I've heard about helicopter parents, you know, that hover over their children or lawnmower parents, you know, that, that cut the path so that they have no troubles or difficulty. But I thought that one probably takes the cake for me. And yet we all understand the notion, just human nature, we want a life without difficulty, without hardship, without pain, without suffering. That's what we would choose. Think about this. Jonathan Haidt is a psychologist, and he presented a a hypothetical exercise for parents. So before your child is born, imagine being given the script of their whole life. And you have five minutes to read their life, the good and the bad, and you're given an eraser, and with that eraser, you can edit their life. What would you erase? Can you imagine that? Early on in his life, you're reading about your child, and you discover, first off, he has a learning disability. You know, for other kids, reading comes easily for them, but your child's going to struggle and really struggle with that all their life. That might be one that you would want to erase. But you keep reading, you know, as your child's best friend in high school dies of cancer. How devastating that was for your child. Or they get into the college they want, and they're doing well in school, even with their learning disability. They're doing well. They're making progress. they got good friends, but they're in a car wreck. And your child is not hurt physically, just some minor injuries. But the other passengers in the car, they have some lifelong complications. And for the next several years, your child just spirals downward with depression because they survived that. But you keep reading. They graduate college, they get married, they have a family, they're doing well, they're prospering, but then there's an economic downturn. Your child loses their job, unemployed for well over a year. They almost lose the, have to file bankruptcy. It's devastating. Imagine reading the script of your child's life before they're born, the whole script, and you're given an eraser. What would you delete? What would you erase? Now, most of us, just almost instinctively, just without even thinking about it, just let's just erase that learning disability. Let's erase that friend's cancer. Let's erase and just kind of remove all those difficulties and hardships. 
Because we want them to have a good life, a life without struggles and pain and, and hardships and difficulties. But then ask yourself, is that really what is best for them? For you to remove all their troubles, all their hardships. What if you erase the one thing that's going to teach them to be compassionate? What if you erase that hardship that shows them how to have joy in spite of circumstances? What if you erase some pain and suffering that ends up being the thing that God would use the most to develop their character and their faith in him? What if you erase something that God was going to use for good in some great way to be a blessing, not just for them, but for untold others? Now, we all know from spiritual growth surveys and just anecdotal evidence that the number one contributor to spiritual growth is not dynamic preaching or amazing Bible classes or an outstanding uh, youth and student ministry. None of those things compare the one thing that promotes spiritual growth above all else, and you know what it is, is pain and suffering and struggles. That's what draws us to God. That's what allows us to grow when the walls of life crumble around us. It's the best opportunity we have to grow and for God to be glorified. Open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. That's what we're studying these last several weeks. We're going to continue that today. Tonight we're having small group Bible studies. If you're not part of a group or if yours is not meeting, you're welcome to join the group that's meeting in the chapel. This book of Nehemiah is really a 2,500-year-old prayer journal because we read over and over again about Nehemiah praying. And you read through the story, though, and some things happening to God's people, and it would be easy to think, well, you know, God could just take his magic eraser and erase some of these troubles that was happening in Nehemiah's day in this circumstance. But he didn't do that. Nehemiah is an exile in a foreign land. While as an adult, he's a cupbearer of the king, but still he's an outsider serving the king in that role. The day comes when he hears the news about the city of Jerusalem, his homeland, and it's devastating news. It's shameful news. The walls are still in rumble. It was terrible. It was not just a morale downer. It was unsafe. It was not good. No one wanted to live like that. Look how the book opens, Nehemiah 1, verse 4. We've been looking at this a couple of times already. As soon as I heard these words Nehemiah wrote, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. These words, these are the kind of things that if you can erase, you want to hear this. You don't want to experience this. These would be the things that you want to erase out of your life. But for Nehemiah, the walls have fallen. It's in rubble. He weeps. He prays, he cries out to God. But again, the question for him is, what can he do? He's an exile in a foreign land. He's a cupbearer. He's not a construction worker. He's not a mason. He's 900 miles away from what has happened. What could Nehemiah do? And some of you know that feeling, that feeling of hopelessness because you've been there. You hear the news, you learn what's happening, but you're not in a position to fix it. It's well beyond your resources, your talent, your ability, and you feel so hopeless. 
So you find yourself asking questions like, what am I supposed to do? Or what can I do now? Or, or what do you do when you can't do anything? Will you do just what Nehemiah did? And folks, if we learn nothing from this book except this is pray. We started with that. That was the main thing. Nehemiah prayed. It's a theme over and over and over again. That we see God rebuilds us through prayer. Last week we talked about God rebuilding through brokenness. Because Nehemiah was broken. That's what drove him to pray and to go to God. Well, today I want us to see how God rebuilds us through endurance. Endurance. Just staying with it. Because any successful rebuilding project requires endurance. Now, some of you know this because you've maybe had a big project that took longer than you thought. Maybe you remodeled or built a house, and you had a, a, a time frame in mind, and you just blew that one out of the water. And it got very discouraging because of the difficulty of remaining strong and steadfast during that process. Endurance is the strength to keep moving forward when everything in you feels like quitting. And that's what's going on here in Nehemiah as we kind of work our way into the story. In chapter 1, Nehemiah hears the devastating news. And he's devastated. He weeps. He prays. He fasts. In chapter 2, he's blessed by the king with the resources, everything he needs to build the walls, get the work done. In chapter 3, there's a list of who does what. My first intention was just kind of skip over that chapter, a lot of names, and what do we really need to know about all that? But next week, we're going to look at some of those names and why those names are there and why that's important. But I want to look today at chapter 4 where the opposition arises. Almost immediately, as he's trying to do good, he's got trouble. Opposition arises. And that's why endurance is required. You pray about it. You're brokenhearted about it. But you've got to remain steadfast and endure. And this is just what you expect in life. When you follow God's call, endurance is needed because opposition is going to come. Think about what you know about God, his character. God is a builder. God is a creator. God is a redeemer. He's a restorer. This is who he is. In contrast to that, Satan is a destroyer. He's trying to take you down. So the opposition is going to be there. Sometimes we think if God has called me to it, then he's going to open all the doors and it's going to be an easy, smooth path and there's not going to be trouble or difficulty. We think that way, but we don't get that from the Bible. Because over and over again, when you read the Bible, that's not what you see. In fact, when you commit to being a follower of Jesus, when you're a part of that rebuilding you can expect opposition. Notice that Nehemiah wasn't facing this opposition because he was doing something wrong. He had opposition because he was doing what was right. And I say that because there's some faulty theology and it creeps into our lives. Sometimes without thinking about it, we might even repeat it. We might see it on Pinterest and it sounds good, but it is not of Scripture. I'm thinking about this. If you follow God, if you put Jesus first, then your life is going to be perfect. Your world is going to be just as you would like it. Your life is going to be wonderful always. But remember Jesus' words. Luke 9, verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up their cross, and follow me. 
That's correct theology. So when we follow God and opposition or obstacles begin to surface, don't necessarily just jump to the conclusion or assume it's because you're doing something wrong. It may be that you have that opposition because you're doing what is right. Too many people give up on God and make the wrong choices because they don't understand this. They've got faulty theology. A wife will say, I just don't love my husband anymore. It's just too difficult. Maybe I missed the person God intended for me to marry. And we'll put God's name into wrong thinking when really God wants us to endure, keep our word, keep our vow. That's his plan. Or someone will say, we prayed for this job and it hasn't gone well. We can't sell our house. So maybe this isn't what God wanted us to do. Is God closing the door? Or is Satan trying to discourage you and work against you? Peter brought some clarity to early Christians who were finding themselves questioning God and, and wait a minute, what, what's it supposed to be like? Look at his words, 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. It's not strange. Don't be caught off guard. When you answer God's call to rebuilding, expect it. Almost look for it. That's what the Bible is telling us. So let's observe how Satan was able to discourage, or at least try to discourage, Nehemiah. And he does the same things even today. So first, Nehemiah has to deal with discouraging people. Discouraging people over and over again. As you read through the Nehemiah, the whole book, people are trying to discourage him. Look in chapter 4, how it opens, verse 1. So when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall... He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. So for Nehemiah, it was Sanballat and Tobiah who tried to discourage him. In fact, if you read through the book, and I'm encouraging you to do that, read through the book, because we're kind of looking at an overview and different applications here. When you read through, you see things repeated seven times in this short book. You have this happening. The people are God are making progress, and then it will say, when they heard. People heard about their progress, and they jumped in to discourage them. When others hear about that, You've got discouraging people in your life, right? I mean, they're not named Sanballat or Tobiah. I mean, if they are, I mean, you could make fun of them for that. But I don't even have to explain discouraging people. Because you know what it's like when you're trying to do the right thing and those people come into your life and they discourage you. In fact, what's so just heartbreaking about that sometimes is it surprises you. The ones that you thought would support you can be the ones who discourage you the most. It wasn't where you were looking to have that opposition. You thought your spouse would be supportive of your spiritual commitment. Instead, they roll their eyes. Maybe you decided to turn over a new leaf. And you thought your best friend would support you. You make the decision to stop drinking. They know the trouble, the pain that that causes. And so when you tell them, 
They're not encouraging. They're not supportive. Or maybe you make some changes in your family, try to get your priorities right, and instead of your extended family supporting you in that, you get pushback, sarcastic remarks, doubt, opposition. It can discourage you. Why is that? Especially from those people that we thought would be supportive of us. I think it's because your rebuilding is an indictment against them. You're making that decision to do well is a threat to them. We see it in the text. Let me illustrate it like this. Have you ever lived in a neighborhood where you have that one person who has the perfectly manicured lawn? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, every other day they're mowing and their grass has that checkerboard pattern. I mean, that's like, like grass voodoo or something. That is not of God. God did not create grass to be checkerboard, right? I mean, it just doesn't happen that way naturally. Now, that's you. If you've got that perfectly manicured yard, no offense, but nobody wants to be your neighbor. <laughs> nobody. You think your lawn looks so perfect, and really it does, but we don't like it. That's the fact. I was invited to speak in Coleman on Wednesday night. And it was good seeing how we were able to go back and uh, be with people that we were at, uh, with for nine years. It was a sweet reunion, and, and that was nice. I was remembering I had a neighbor like that. Across the street, kind of diagonal. His yard was perfect, y'all. Perfect. It looked like carpet, green carpet. And, and that's okay, except for my kids were like elementary, middle school at the time. He would um, catch his clippings and then dump them on my side of the street. And my kids are like, Dad, that's not right. You know, he has this perfect yard, and he's dumping them on our yard. And in his defense, that area was kind of a, a row of trees and kind of a thicket and a low place where the water drains, really a ditch is what it was. And so he was putting them in the ditch. I wish he wouldn't have done it, but I told the kids, hey, it's, all, it's no big deal, it's okay, we'll just look the other way. I did not know this until years later. I think our kids were in college, and we were reminiscing, talking about things. Our kids went the whole block, and they grabbed every dandelion they could collect <laughs> and then rolled them all over his yard. <laughs> kids, I'm not telling you to do that. That was wrong. It was wrong, but we didn't laugh about it. But to me, it perfectly illustrates the point. When you have that perfect lawn, nobody else on the whole block appreciates it. Because your standard of excellence indicts us for our mediocrity. We're doing good just to bush hog the weeds every other week. And then you've got this perfect gra uh, grass everywhere. Your zeal is indicting us on our apathy. You know where we're going with this, right? Spiritually, the same thing happens. When you decide to follow Jesus, not just attend worship, but you make it personal. It's inside. It's, it's changing the way you think. It's changing the way you treat people. It's changing the way you make decisions. It's not just where you go to church on Sunday. It's not just, a, I read my Bible. It's, it's changing you. 
And you're making decisions and you're building your life in ways that you've not done so before. You're going to have some friends, some family, some people in your life who are not going to like it. Instead of spending your money, thousands of dollars, to take your family to a theme park again. You say, I'm going to take my family on a mission trip. Your friends aren't going to like that. Because they're not going on that mission trip. They're still going to that theme park. And so they're not going to be encouraging to you. So don't be compromised. When God begins to move in your life, you change your priorities. You try to rebuild some things. And some people around you are not supportive. Now, the opposite is also true. When you're struggling to get through the week, you've had a hard time, maybe it's a a busy season or things are just hectic, and, and a good friend just sends you a card in the mail just because, or maybe your spouse knows or a good friend knows that you've got a lot on you right now, and at just the right moment, you get that text thinking about you and all that's on your shoulders right now, I'm praying for you, I love you, you got this. Just what you need. Just what you need at just the right moment. So I encourage you to make a commitment to encourage others, especially those who are rebuilding, who are trying to do good, who are trying to follow the Lord. The right word at the right time can make all the difference. Nehemiah experiences opposition of discouraging people, the naysayers, the critics, the people who did not want him to succeed. Look at verse 6. So he built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. That's the ESV. The NIV says the people worked with all their heart. They were going at it, just, we'd say, firing on all cylinders. And they get to the halfway point. But if you've ever built a house or remodeled or had a major project at work, and and you get that halfway point, what you know is that means absolutely nothing. Right? Right? Because that's all it is. You're just halfway done. Look what happens in verse 10. They wear out. They've been going strong. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. But ourselves, we are not able to rebuild the wall. By ourselves, we're not able to rebuild the wall. Too much rubble. Our strength is giving out. So another form of opposition is disappointing progress. It's one thing to have the naysayer, the critic, but it's another when you're just kind of looking and think, I'm just two steps forward, one step back. I'm, I'm halfway, but we're, we're not getting through anytime soon. I'm running out of energy. I don't think I can make it. It is so hard to endure with that, to keep going. As I say this, maybe some of you are thinking, that's right where I am. You feel like you're spinning your wheels. You're not getting ahead. My marriage is too broken. My friend is too bitter. I'm I'm in way too much debt. And you just want to give up. Because you're just overwhelmed at that lack of progress. When those discouraging people are there and the disappointing progress, what do you do? Well, a couple of lessons from Nehemiah. First is this keep praying. I know we said it, we're going to say it again. Because it's a theme of the book. If we learn anything, 12 times in the book of Nehemiah, he keeps praying. He keeps going back to God. Look at chapter 4. The people come to oppose him in verse 4. Hear, O God, 
for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So he's praying for the opposition. I shouldn't say praying for them. He's really praying against them, isn't he? Because they are working against God and he realizes that. But even though they keep coming after him again and again and again and again, read through the book and notice Nehemiah does not give them the time of day. Now that's hard, folks. When you've got somebody in your life that just keeps asking for your attention, begging for your attention, it's hard not to give them your attention. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. Instead, he turns them over to God. God, here they are again. You've got to do something about this. He endures in prayer. These people came to Nehemiah four different times, basically saying, stop your work, come to a meeting, and let's talk about this. And Nehemiah's reply basically is like, no, I'm not going to do that. Nehemiah 6, verse 3. And I sent the messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Why should a great work stop when I come down to you? So here's the second lesson to learn. Just keep building. So keep praying and keep building. I know you're tired. I know that it's not made the progress that maybe you wish you were at by now. You keep praying. You keep building. Maybe that friend that you've been concerned about is not returning your texts, your phone calls. They're indifferent to your efforts. You keep praying. You keep building. Maybe you've had an unexpected expense and it's blowing your budget. You don't know where the money is going to come from. You keep praying. You keep building. Maybe your spouse responds to your good efforts with criticism and sarcasm. You keep praying. You keep building. Maybe you're waiting for an answer from God about a job or a certain situation. Maybe a pregnancy. Maybe a move. You keep praying. You keep building. Your child's heart seems hard. You can't get through. You keep praying. You keep building. Today, you pick up another brick. Tomorrow, you pick up another brick. You don't feel like it, but you keep making progress. I put it on the screen Galatians 6, 9, such a beautiful verse of Scripture. Look at that with me. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's a great verse. In fact, can we say that together in unison? Let's do that. Good and loud. Ready? Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Keep praying. Keep building. You work, work. You're tired. Feel like you're alone, giving your best effort. Maybe you're halfway, maybe not even halfway. It's so easy to get discouraged. I was reading in Nehemiah chapter 6. It's interesting there that all this false information starts being spread out. And I thought, fake news is not a new thing. Fake news is a human thing. Now, we keep reinventing ways to spread the fake news. But all this misinformation is spread in chapter 6. 
Could they last? Will it fall down? God rebuilds through endurance. I put a blank there on your outline. The wall was completed in 52 days. 52 days. That's amazing. God rebuilds us through endurance. I thought about that. You know, the saying is that 21 days makes a habit. Have you heard that? 21 days, you do something every day. For 21 days, it becomes a habit. What if you did something for 52 days? And every day, you keep praying to God, you're building. God rebuilds us through endurance. Let me close with this. The Bible describes what Jesus did on the cross with that same word, endurance. Look on the screen, Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, there's the word, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that we, you will not grow weary and lose heart. So when those discouraging people get the best of you, when that disappointing progress just zaps you of your morale, your momentum, and you want to give up, think about Jesus and what he endured. Look at that passage again where it says just before he endured the cross. It says, for the joy set before him. What is the joy that set before him? Was it heaven? Because he knew that's where he was going? Was that the joy that was set before him? See, I don't think so, because he came from heaven. He left heaven to come to earth to die for our sins. He was really going back to where he came. So I don't think it's heaven. You think, well, maybe it was this fellowship with God, his Father. But he always had fellowship with God, his Father. He always has, always will. So that's something that wasn't necessarily something he was waiting for. So what's the joy that was set before him that caused him to endure the cross and all that went with it? Do you know? It's you. It's me. It's us. He came to save us. He could have stayed in heaven. He didn't have to do this. But he endured the cross so he could die for our sins so that we could be with him forever. Jesus is our role model for endurance. Talk about opposition. He still has it today. And Satan does everything he can to discourage you for making the decision to follow him. Our invitation is to encourage you to say yes to the one who endured so much for you that you could be his joy. And he would say, make my joy complete. What he wants to know is, do you believe that he's the son of God? Are you ready to repent of your sins? Have your sins washed away in baptism? Let him give you his spirit living in you so that one day you can live with him forever in heaven. We want to encourage you to be baptized and make that confession. Or if we can just pray for you, whatever your discouragement may be, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage?